Welcome to the Beef Watch Podcast. I'm Aaron Berger, a Nebraska Extension Educator. For today's Beef Watch Podcast, we're going to discuss an article from the September-October issue of Beef Magazine titled, Will the Next Farm Laborer Please Stand Up? To discuss this article, I'm joined today by the author, Dr. Elliot Dennis, who's a Livestock Marketing and Risk Management Extension Specialist at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Thanks for joining me today. Yes, thanks for having me. Well, Dr. Dennis, when I saw this article, it really resonated with me because as I have conversation with farmers and ranchers, this topic, the issue of labor, frequently in my mind is the top two or three things that they say are one of the greatest challenges to them in terms of growing and expanding their operation. In this article, I thought you did a really nice job of going through and just giving kind of a historical perspective on how the labor market got to where it is today, and then also giving some perspective on what's driving the current tightness in the existing labor market, especially as we think about ag labor. Uh, walk through with us just some of the content you covered in the article and and some of your takeaways as you think about how this might shape and influence labor for agriculture in the current stage we're in, but also as we go forward. Yeah, I, I would agree with you, Aaron, that we're always talking about labor. And so it was just nice just to review and even clarify some of the things for myself of kind of how we got here and and, and really where we're going in the future. Um, what we really know is that farm labor, especially in, in rural communities, is really tight. And so one of, the, one of the things that I shared was number of employees to job openings. And this is kind of a nice ratio to, to say, if we have a job opening, how many people are available to fill that position? And right now that number is currently about 0.7, which means if we have a job opening, we can expect to hire 70% of a person. So we already know we're in a tight labor market in general. And then we kind of just talk through, you know, where are we tight and at what age demographics? And so the Economic Research Service really did a nice job. Uh, I borrowed from some of their graphs saying, you know, where are these labor populations? Are they in the metro area? Are they in the non-metro area? And at, and at what ages are they at? And so we kind of talked through a little bit through that. And then we focus on if we have labor, how much do we pay them? And we talk a little bit about where ag labor is relative to if we're a livestock producer or if we're a crop producer, or if we have more technical skills, like we can operate machinery and how much should we actually be paying people? Then we kind of went through, there's been a lot of conversations about this minimum wage and the effective minimum wage, particularly here in Nebraska. And the general consensus has been that the average wage that we can expect to to get really at any, working at any place is about $15. So if you remember a few years back, there was this big push to have basically $15 be a living wage. Well, ironically, right when we had that, uh, we ended up having large amounts of inflation. So uh, that $15 is probably still not, quote, a, a living wage. But we talked kind of where we're at in that. And, and we kind of tie things up by saying, you know, if we don't have the domestic labor, what does the foreign labor market look like? How much do we need to pay them? What are some, where are they currently located? And if we want to bring in new types of foreign labor, where can we actually get those individuals? And what processes that are, are available and, and in place that we as livestock producers can apply for these different types of visas and, and legal status for them so that they can come into work? And a lot of, sometimes there's a permanent and non-permanent and we really focus on, you know, the non-permanent uh, visas and those options. So really try to be comprehensive in that. 
one of the things I think that the data shows that, again, everybody knows is just how tight the labor market is. And then I think the other thing that got my attention is just the value of of labor, of ag labor, especially in the upper Midwest. I guess in looking at your data that you referenced, I hadn't really thought or seen the numbers before of you know, what the average wage is as we think about ag labor, especially in the upper Midwest, as compared to other places like in the Southeast, where we're looking at three to four dollars less than what it is in the upper Midwest, thinking Nebraska, South Dakota, Iowa, Minnesota, I guess kind of help us understand what do you think is differentiating that labor so much based on regions of the country? Yeah, a lot of it has to do with the type of skill and the market there. And so basically what the ERS does, really the Department of Labor, when they're talking about this, what they call an adverse wage. And really when you're thinking about hiring a foreign worker, you have to pay them at least what they call the adverse wage. And the reason why they're doing that is because they don't want to artificially depress the labor market in those areas. And so for us, like you said, in in the Midwest, or really the the Northern Plains, we have a $17.33 adverse effect wage. And this is, as I said, an average. And essentially what they do is they survey producers and they ask, what are you paying for certain job practices? And so if we're expected to go and hire a, a foreign labor, essentially the minimum price just to pay them, that's not including other stuff like uh, housing and transportation and paying for all their fees and to get their visas is $17.33 here in Nebraska. And we provide a nice map that shows, you know, if you're located in other states and you're looking at that, what, what is your effective adverse wage? You know, when we talk about bringing in labor or hiring new labor, that wage rate is the great equalizer, just like price in, in the commodity markets is the great equalizer of how much supply we should bring to the market. So the higher that wage rate is, the, the less likely we are to go out and, and hire foreign labor. But it also provides a nice you know, trade-off. If we can calculate how much it would be to bring in a, a foreign labor, maybe we can pay our domestic laborers a little bit more and recruit them to, to come and work for us. One of the other charts you showed is just some trends in farm wages over time going back to 2014, which looking at you know how how wages have changed, I guess the graph was 2014 to 2022, but uh, really a pretty significant trend up in terms of wages and and the cost of labor. Yeah, what we really saw was that the the top 10 percent of of laborers, their wage didn't change a whole bunch. It was about $25 an hour. These would be people with higher skills, technical labor, machinery, machinery operators. What we saw is that the bottom really rose. So these would be your low skill individuals and that rate, that wage really came up. We were at about $10 an hour in 2014 and, and we're at about a little over $16 an hour as kind of that bottom 10% of workers. So that gap between the top 10% and the bottom 10% really narrowed. And this is why we're talking about, uh, you know, not only having the labor supply there, but even if we have non-skilled labor, you know, we're going to have to pay that person a little bit more, which kind of brings us back to the beginning of what are we doing to develop a domestic labor workforce? And we talked a little bit about, you know, what technical colleges have been doing, what general land grant universities have been doing to to try to build skill sets of people who want to go back. And then there's a whole separate conversation of once they're there, how do we, how do they make sure they have appropriate training, a good work environment 
so that they actually want to stay once they're there. One of the other things you highlighted in the article, and you mentioned this also, is just some of the different options that are available in terms of bringing in uh, non-resident labor from other countries. There's a number of different programs with that. And uh, Nebraska Extension, the Center for Ag Profitability, recently had a webinar on that topic. Tell us a little more about that. And if folks want to find out more about that, how they can find it. Yeah, we had about an hour-long webinar for the Center for Ag Profitability, and you can find that webinar posting at cap.unl.edu. That's cap.unl.edu. And there we we kind of talk through really three different perspectives. If you're a producer, what are those things you need to know? What are those general broad trends? And then we actually had a lawyer come on and, who works in, in this space and says, you know, this is what I see as, as a lawyer who tries to fill out these uh, this type of information. So we just went ahead and summarized some of those. So really, we separate out farm labor as in permanent and non-permanent. Permanent would be like green card status. You've probably We've probably all heard about that. These are a lot of the 01, 02, 03 visas. Um, but ultimately, their desire is to, to remain here as a citizen and basically uh, be on the path to citizenship. Non-permanent people are people who come in for a temporary amount of time. And there's a lot of different options available for livestock producers, a little bit fewer options for, for dairy producers. But for mainly if you're a beef cattle producer, we're, we're talking about H2A, H2B for people who are pretty low skilled. Um, and they are generally here for, you know, these are people who are here for nine months. Very common in, I would say, in the kind of the fruit and nut industry that these have been used. Um, some of the more traditional ones uh, in kind of animal breeding are the TN visa or the H1B. These are people who have bachelor's degree. They're, they're more skilled. They, they have technical expertise. Um, and then we also have F1. Those are people who are, are in school or have just graduated school. And so when we talk about maybe trying to find labor that's here, that maybe came over to study and, and have developed, you know, a skill set, it's, it's not necessarily going and, and trying to find a, an agency who has connections with people in Mexico or South Africa or other parts of the world to come in who are low skilled or, or I'd say underskilled. But, you know, looking at our, our local universities, you know, a lot of options out there that people who have, you know, bachelor's degrees, they can come and work for uh, a limited amount of time and then they can actually come back um, on a different type of visa. So we just kind of summarized what was in that webinar in a nice table for just quick reference. But if you want kind of more details, you want to hear and some of the uh, other options, definitely watch the webinar and uh, feel free to reach out to the lawyer or myself. Uh, and we can clarify and, and help guide you in, in the direction that you want to go. Dr. Dennis, as you look at the labor situation, as you look at the data, anything else that stands out to you that from your perspective, agricultural producers who are in ownership or management roles should understand that might be helpful to them as they think about how they can try to address labor issues in their operation? Yeah, I think there's this strong desire to have technological improvements. And I think that's good. And, and the you know, the argument is that if we have more technology, that uh, not only do we make better business decisions, but we can potentially solve some of the issues with the labor market. And I think that's true to a certain extent. So it's important to know kind of where that uh, boundary stop. And the first is that while it will replace some of the low-skilled labor, 
oftentimes it's substituting for more high skilled labor. This would be like, okay, now we have yield monitoring data. Well, now you have to be able to read and understand and use yield monitoring data or, or autonomous tractors, you know, you still have to be able to use and update information. So I would say kind of the larger operations as we go to more, uh, you know, more technology driven, we have to become good users of data and understand how to use that data to improve decisions that maybe potentially have the additional benefit of, of reducing labor. But what happens when one of those autonomous tractors you know, breaks down? We have to have skilled people who know how to work with electronics. And so while it may solve some of the labor issues, it's often just a substitution into a different type of labor that we need that maybe is you know, not necessarily tied to the specific location. And so it's going to solve some of those issues, but not everyone. And so just as we're thinking about adopting new technologies in our operation, uh, know that, yes, it might solve a certain type of labor, but it might be exposing you to the need for another type of labor, a, a higher skilled labor, and just being aware of that when you take upon these uh, different technologies. Dr. Dennis, thanks for writing the article. I thought, again, it was very applicable to the time we're in, the challenges I hear farmers and ranchers say they're facing, and I appreciate the content you shared. Yeah, thanks for having me, Aaron. Well, for more information on the article that we discussed today, you can find this in the September-October issue of Beef Magazine. Again, in reference to the webinar on different hiring opportunities in terms of dealing with foreign workers, you can find more information on that at the cap.unl.ed website. Again, that's Center for Ag Profitability at cap.unl.edu.